Hey everybody and welcome back to another episode of Rapping with Reef Bum. I'm your host Keith Berkelhammer. So today I have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Ben Titus to the show. Hey Ben. How you Ready? doing? Thanks for yeah, having yeah. me. So for those of you that don't know, Ben is an assistant professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of Alabama. Ben received the Master Graduate Student Fellowship Award at MACNA 2017 and was a speaker at the 2019 MACNA. But before we start talking with Ben, I want to take care of a little bit of business and thank our sponsors for the show, Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine. I really appreciate the support from both of those companies. And I also really appreciate all you viewers tuning in and supporting the show as well. So please, as always, spread the word and hit that like button so more people can find the live stream. And as per usual, I encourage everybody to ask questions in the chat. One last piece of housekeeping, all episodes of Rapping with Reef Bump are now available as podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. So if you want to catch replays of the shows in the podcast format, check it out on those platforms. So Ben, man, thanks, uh, thanks again for taking the time uh, to, uh, to join us direct from Alabama. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for having me. So you've got a very, very interesting background. You know, you're a biologist, you're a scientist. Can you explain to us in layman's terms what your uh, focus uh, you know, is, is on in terms of what you're studying? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, I think I kind of look at my, re my uh, research program in sort of two different ways. I think, you know, broadly, I'm sort of a classically trained evolutionary biologist. And so, I'm really interested in understanding symbiosis and understanding how biodiversity evolves within symbiosis. So understanding how species evolve that are symbiotic or mutualistic. Um, and I'm really interested um, on tropical marine symbiotic relationships in particular. And so I focus my research efforts on tropical sea anemones and their awesome crustacean and fish symbionts. And so that is sort of the big, broad, sort of basic research program that I run um, at the University of Alabama. And then more specifically from an applied side, you know, these are animals that are major targets in the aquarium trade and hugely popular in the aquarium trade. And so from an applied perspective, I'm really interested in, you know, how many species um, are in the aquarium trade, in particular in sort of the organismal groups that I'm interested in. So these sea anemones and crustacean symbionts, um, you know, there's a lot of undescribed species that are sort of floating around. And I'm sort of interested in sort of disentangling um, how many there are and sort of what their stories are. And we'll, uh, we'll certainly dig into some of the uh, specifics in terms of what the, uh, these uh, species are that we might not even know about in our, in our reef tanks, but how did, so how did you get all interested in this sort of thing? How did, how did you, um, you know, find yourself to, uh, to get into this field? Was it a love you had as a, as a kid, just, uh, you know, for, for being around ocean life and whatnot? Yeah, totally. You know, I grew up in, in the Midwest, so I grew up in Bowling Green, Ohio. Uh, so, you know, our family would take vacations to the beach, um, really the Atlantic coast. But other than that, I really was not exposed to sort of marine science at all. But, you know, I think like a lot of kids just sort of had a fascination with the ocean, loved Shark Week, loved going to the library, checking out books on sharks. You know, my two favorite books growing up were like sharks and whales and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and so, yeah, I think, 
you know, I get my haircut now a lot of times and, you know, I tell people, hey, I'm a marine biologist and you get the, oh, I wanted to be a marine biologist too when I was little. And it's just sort of like one of those things. Yeah, it's like I never grew up, essentially. Um, I tried to. So I was a business major when I started college. I went to a small liberal arts university called Otterbein College, which is in uh, a suburb of Columbus, Ohio. And I started as a business major and Mm. took an econ class and I hated it. (laughs) And (laughs) in the meantime, I found out that there was um, a professor at our university in the biology department, actually a paleontologist, Mm. and he studied fossil coral reefs and he taught a class called coral reef ecology. And that went to Belize every other year. There you go. And so and so I went to his office at the end of my freshman year and I told him, you know, I want to become a marine biologist. And, you know, I'll never forget the first thing he looked at me and he's like, look, there's no such thing as a marine biologist. (laughs) He said, you are a biologist just like anybody else. You just happen to do research in the ocean. And so um, you should just get a general biology degree. And then just make sure that your research focus um, is on stuff you're interested in in the ocean. And so I kind of did that. So I switched my major. Um, and, you know, from there, I was able to take his coral reef class, went to Belize, also did a, an undergrad research project with him that was uh, on a fossil coral reef in the Dominican Republic, which was super cool. Mm-hmm. Um, still one of the more interesting research experiences. I love talking about that. And yeah, from there, you know, I was sort of able to, you know, use that research experience at Otterbein to sort of uh, get into grad grad school, essentially. Um, and then it's just kind of snowballed. And I've been sort of a transient <laughs> academician from master's to PhD to multiple postdocs and now finally kind of landing a permanent permanent spot. But um, how was the um, yeah. how was the whole process of becoming, uh, you know, earning that PhD? Was that uh, was that a long haul? It was, you know, I did a, I did a master's first, which I will, I always tell people that was the best thing I had decided to do. I honestly was not entirely sure coming out of undergrad that the PhD route was the one I was going to take. Um, and that sort of gave me sort of like a low pressure way to get into academia and to understand what research is all about and, you know, make mistakes, you know, you're 22 years old coming out of undergrad and, you know, you really know nothing. And so it gives you sort of a low pressure, low stakes way to kind of make a couple mistakes. And, and then at the end of that, I kind of had a clearer picture of what I wanted to do. So my PhD was great. I, I, I thought that was awesome. It was a phenomenal experience. And, um, I did that at Ohio state university and, you know, about five years and some change, which is, you know, pretty good yeah. for a PhD in the States. Yeah. But yeah, I've had a really good experience so far. I, I kind of like went the opposite route. I um I, I thought about <laughs> biology in college, and then I took a biology class. I was like, mm, that's uh that's gonna be a little tough. Maybe I kind of stick with the uh, business <laughs> side of things. So I, I ended up going to uh, graduate school for communications and business. Spent like twenty six nice. years in the media business. You know, wearing a suit and whatnot, and and uh, yep. you know, about um, I don't know, seven years ago or what what have you, I uh, had the opportunity to kind of make a life change. My wife and I became empty nesters, so I was like, you know what, let's just kind of like drop the whole corporate grind thing, 
And uh, we moved up to Vermont, and uh, now I'm doing what I really, really love. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Hey, everybody's got to find their path. You know, I cannot imagine having to wear a, you know, a shirt and tie. Like, you know, I roll into uh, work with a hat and uh, I, Isn't it awesome? <laughs> it's the best. So we've got yeah. uh, Brian Mac. one. The question is, uh, I am a biology major. What kind of jobs are there out there for uh, marine biologists? It's a good question. Um, you know, there, I, there's really two kind of tracks. Um, in my sort of estimation, you could sort of have the applied side, which, you know, you could get a position at a state agency. So it's sort of maybe like a Florida Fish and Wildlife or, you know, a state funded Fish and Wildlife position. Um, you know, there are federal positions that are similar in that vein with, you know, NOAA. Um, and then there's sort of like the academic research track. Um, which is more of like, you know, getting a job as a, as a researcher or faculty, um, faculty member at a university. Um, all of those jobs for the most part are going to require an advanced degree. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, unfortunately we've sort of reached this point where you need to go get a master's degree minimally and, um, a PhD would be nice in a lot of respects. I know a number of people at Florida Fish and Wildlife who were able to get in on the ground floor um, a number of years back with either a master's degree um, or without a master's degree, and they are now going to get an advanced degree while working simultaneously that's gotta, that's um, because they feel like they need that to kind of keep their career moving a little bit. So, you know, that's not the greatest, <laughs> the greatest. News Probably not, not what he wanted to hear or, or she wanted but, to hear, but, um, but it's, you know what, honestly, grad school is a phenomenal experience. It can be if you end up in the right spot and, um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, and then there's the aquarium track too. And, you know, honestly, and I think this is something that I find so super fascinating. And one of the reasons I've loved, staying in the aquarium trade world is because you get people like yourself um, and lots of other people that I've met over the last, you know, four or five years that have this sort of entrepreneurial, um, scientific, technical aspect um, that they really bring to the table. So the aquarium side of things is much more of like the Wild West from a professional standpoint. There's not one track, you know, you don't even need a biology degree. Right. So, oh, yeah. So, you know, if you like that kind of thing, then there's sort of a, a non traditional track. Like, there's no degree in aquarium yeah. trade. So, you, um, <laughs> so you mentioned uh, the aquarium uh, trade. You, you actually worked at a coral farm, right? Before you went to um, get the PhD. Yeah, I did actually. So, you know, Todd Melman runs this place out in uh, New Albany, Ohio, named Reef Systems Coral Farm. He was looking for somebody um, right when I was finishing my master's degree at Auburn. Um, and, you know, I, I had defended my my thesis. My wife was finishing her master's as well. She could finish. She could have finished remotely. So we actually just moved back to Columbus um, and I worked for Todd. And that was, you know, that was a phenomenal experience for me. It was a, a crash course in really understanding what it takes to maintain a tank and quite frankly, just understanding the diversity and the sort of the scope of the trade itself. You know, we're mostly a coral farm. So, you know, he actually had like this agricultural certification in Ohio, um, you know, but then we'd bring stuff in um, from overseas as well from time to time. Um, and then he would try and farm those. 
And, you know, I did the service. So I drove the van around. I did all the service mm. um, for, for Todd for, you know, each week. I was doing probably two or three days out on the road, wow. driving around to his different accounts. Um, he was actually a, a co-PI on a National Science Foundation grant with um, Dr. Andrea Gertoli at Ohio State University. She's a coral biogeochemist. So we also had a big NSF funded project at the coral farm, which was really exciting to be around. Um, and I also think it kind of gave me that perspective, like this is what, this is how these things can be married together in a really successful way. And um, yeah, it was, it was, it was really an interesting education there. Year, yeah. Really. Yeah, totally, yeah. totally. All right, man. So, Ben, you, you gave a very interesting uh, talk back. Uh, I mentioned you, you spoke at Magna in 2019, and it was about these cryptic, undescribed species in our saltwater tanks. Can you uh, just explain to the folks what that uh, really means in terms of uh, what, what your definition of cryptic species are? Totally. You know, the best example, and I think I gave this in the talk, is is mentioning the giraffes. So giraffes are described as a single species. They all look the same on the outside, essentially. But when you start to sequence the DNA of all the different giraffe populations in Africa, it turns out that there's actually five different species of giraffes that have all that genetically are very distinct. And they've been basically split from each other for two to three million years. So morphologically, physically, the physical characteristics, they look almost identical, but genetically they're very different. And so that's essentially what a cryptic species really is um you know we sort of call them cryptic species complexes because that's sort of implying there's more than one species um and it's the same thing for a lot of these invertebrates so lots of these invertebrates corals shrimp you name it you know these are fairly simple animals from a morphological standpoint and very challenging to work with there's not necessarily a physical characteristic that we can always use to differentiate between different species um, but when you start to sequence them, then you start to realize there's a vast amount, there's way more species level diversity here than what's really just been described using just the morphology alone. And so that can take something like, you know, one of the animals I worked on is the sexy shrimp. It's one of my favorite Thor ambinensis. Gotta you know, love that Latin name. Species. Absolutely. <laughs> and so you, you have, um, and so you have one described species that's global, and when we sequenced it all, it turned out that it's at least five. And so that's that's what we're kind of dealing with. And then since the trade is bringing in animals from all over the world, you know, you really are into a situation where you know you really probably do have dozens and dozens of species that are undescribed in in everybody's home tanks. So what what are the implications of that for the for the sexy shrimp? Are are would you expect to see different types of behaviors for those different species? of a sexy shrimp from a behavioral perspective i they all seem to occupy the same sort of ecological niche space so they live on anemones and they live on corals and things like that um they all wiggle their butt in the air <laughs> <laughs> you know so i have to pick up one of those so from that same, yeah exactly so from that same point not really but um you know, the implications would be if you want to breed them, for instance, you know, maybe you're having a really hard time and you want to start an aquaculture and, you, you know, lots of people like to breed their own animals at home and you're having a, a tough time trying to get these two things bred. Well, you might end up with, you might have a species from Florida, which 
just got redescribed. It's the first one that's been redescribed. It's Thor DiCaprio from Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio is like the <laughs> inspiration behind that name. And um, and then you might have a species from Indonesia. And, you know, it's possible if you want to do an aquaculture program, there's, you know, you're just dealing with two different things that might not reproduce. Um, and then, yeah, the behavioral side of things and obviously the conservation side of things. You know, I mentioned some of those mm. jobs at Fish and Wildlife. You know, they have people there that are there specifically to, you know, manage the trade and make sure that harvest quotas are being met. You know, but if there's all sorts of undescribed species, it's hard to really manage it effectively. So, um, all right, you're saying that behavior might not really be noticeable between different um, species of the same uh, invertebrate, let's say. So, for for instance. The reason why I'm asking this question is peppermint shrimp, right? A lot of folks will use peppermint mm. shrimp to fight aptasia in their reef tanks. But I've heard yeah. that certain types of peppermint shrimp might not necessarily be prone to eating aptasia versus other types. Is that because there might be, you know, cryptic species within the peppermint shrimp family? Or is that um, potentially not related to that? Yeah. 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 I don't want to give the impression that there are not behavioral differences from a cryptic species standpoint. Um, specifically with Thor, I didn't see anything ecologically, you know, on all the diving that I did and all the collecting I've done that indicates that there is, I mean, there, there might be, um, if you look at it a little bit closely or maybe differently than I have. Um, but to your point with, you know, the peppermint shrimp, totally possible. Um, I'm not sure actually if anybody's looked at that or not, um, whether there is cryptic, I know people have looked at like stenopus, the banded coral shrimp and some of these other cleaners. Um, but I don't know what the, what the research has been on, you know, Lismata and some of the other peppermint shrimps yet, but it could be, yeah, I mean, it could be, you know, preferences can definitely change, especially the speciation events, different environments, habitats and that kind of stuff. Do you, do you ever, you know, get, um, any, um, information that you act on from the hobby about certain you know, invertebrates that uh, we keep, you know, in, in our reef tanks. I mean, if, if there are certain observations that um, are made by hobbyists about such animals, is that something that might be fodder for you as a scientist, as a biologist, to kind of take that information and maybe study it? Or is there a whole different process that you go through in terms of, um, you know, kind of like what, what is on your plate to, um, you know, dig into? Um, you know, it's both, honestly, and it can be, it can be both. Um, I, I find there to be a, you know, a slightly, you know, a lack of communication, I guess, or maybe lack fewer avenues of communication between like pure academicians and, and the hobby that I think would be really beneficial if they were more open. Um, you know, a classic, honestly, a great example of this is with, is with Thor, you know, the paper, you know, one of the papers that we had to cite forever was this paper from the 1970s where you have Thor was, you know, the larval dispersal phase of Thor was like 50 days in an aquarium and no, none of these researchers could get it to actually settle, you know, whether you put a, an anemone or a coral in the tank, it, it wouldn't get these larvae to settle. So they just assume that, you know, it has a massive range, it's globally distributed, it's got a massive larval duration um in the water column and then you go on some of the reef tank forums and they know exactly how many days it is until thor metamorphosis goes through metamorphosis and settles 
And then a couple of years back, another, you know, paper was finally written that pinned it down and the trade had that sort of figured out 15 years earlier. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think definitely I want to hear these kinds of things. Um, I think it's really interesting. You know, it's hard to know, you know, what, you know, thread to kind of follow at times. Um, you know, individual projects. I think the way science is done a lot of times, it's not so much individual projects. Like, hey, I saw this really cool thing, this really interesting behavior that this happened with this one shrimp. Can you tell me if this is interesting or not? You know, our funding usually comes from sort of conceptualizing really broad questions and then yeah. sort of having a multi-year investigation. We, a lot of times we don't have a lot of sort of discretionary funds to just sort of like, yeah, you know, go down the rabbit hole, even though that would be nice. There's a lot of um, rabbit holes in those forums for sure. With, there's a lot of, there's a lot of rabbit holes. Um, but you know, with my question with the sort of species level, how many species there are, that is a question that, you know, right now I have funding from the national science foundation to do, um, the research into the clownfish hosting sea anemones and figure out how many species there actually are. Um, part of that is to get samples from the trade and to understand that. And so, you know, you can send out my email address. And if you, anyone wants to send me samples, I'm <laughs> <laughs> willing to take them. Um, so yeah, so that kind of stuff I'm definitely open to and interested in. And I do have some funding for that. Yeah, and I definitely but, want to talk more about sea anemones with you because you're pretty much like mm -hmm. a sea anemone expert in terms of the uh, the symbiotic <laughs> relationship between those uh, invertebrates and, and clownfish. But one one thing that sure, um, you know is is interesting to me. I'm I'm a big SPS nut, you know, so I um, mm -hmm. I love the sticks. I've been keeping yep. like SPS dominant reef tanks for for many many years. But um, yep. you know, there's I, I, I believe there's some research out there about acro eating flatworms, some actual academic research about the life cycle of acro uh, eating flatworms. But that would be um, something interesting to, um, yeah. you know, to, to see even more research on in terms of the life cycle and how to uh, nuke that uh, type of pest in, in a reef tank because it is yeah. tough, man. It is really tough. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, things like that that are sort of these sort of like very applied questions – you know, if there was a company, you know, that were an agent, something, you know, any private foundation that wanted to fund that kind of work, I guarantee you, you could find a flatworm specialist, you know, let's rear these things, let's kind of figure it out. Um, you know, but again, the lines have to be open yeah. and people have to know who each other are and there has to be some, you know, legitimate mechanisms behind that. But yeah, there's stuff like that. I mean, some of the, uh, you know, the research that's developed in the, uh, you know, in, in the, in the trade over the years has been pretty amazing, you know, in terms of like, uh, red bugs, you know, you use, um, you know, um, bear to, uh, or, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, interceptor to, uh, you know, yep. dog heartworm medication. Somebody figured that out that, uh, <laughs> that will, uh, yep. kill the red bugs, but nothing else in the tank except for, I guess, crustaceans, you know, and now, that's uh, right. you know, uh, somebody figured out to use bear insecticide to kill acro eating flatworms. <laughs> so somebody's doing the research on the hobby side and, and uh, you That's know, right. there is academic research going on. But, yeah, it would be great to yeah. kind of like see some sort of, um, you know, tighter lines in terms of the back and forth communication. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, you know, someone like Andy Ryan at Roger Williams, like obviously does a phenomenal job of linking those two. And, you know, there just need to be more people, I think, on both both ends of it. So uh, Ray S made a uh, Ray S made a comment about his sexy shrimp likes uh, says it likes hanging out 
on the Mini Max seems to all disappear after a few months. And, and the question is, what is their lifespan? I think you um, have answered that question, right? Five or six months or was that uh, five or six weeks in terms of the uh, store? Yeah. Um, that's a good, that's a good question. Honestly, I don't really know. A lot of these shrimp have, I think they have pretty short lifespans. Um, you know, there's one shrimp that we work on. It's a cleaner shrimp from the Caribbean. Um, Peterson's cleaner shrimp. It's one of those really pretty purple cleaners. You know, that thing reaches sexual maturity at six months old. And so if it's reaching if that's quick. <laughs> so, you know, the, and the anemones that it lives on in the Caribbean only live for about a year and a half, two years tops. So you're talking about a shrimp that can recruit to an anemone, gain maturity in six months and start reproducing. And, um, yeah, so I would guess less than two years would be my, would be my guess. So this is an interesting question from, uh, Kia Ola, Kia Aloha Reef, I think is how you pronounce that. To what extent are you witnessing species adapting to climate change? It's a very good, and I am not a climate change researcher. So that is a difficult one for me to answer from a, a position of expertise. But I think we're seeing ranges expand in a lot of species. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, that is something that's been seen quite a bit. Um, you know, there's some cool anemone observations that, you know, we're starting to see some really, you know, big shifts or at least just some increases in population size and maybe sort of the edges of some of those ranges. Um, but yeah, that's a difficult question to answer, and it's difficult to disentangle um, a physiological adaptation that an individual would have. You know, if you get hot, you sort of ramp up these sort of heat stress proteins or things like that versus like an, a species level adaptation, which is like selection is acting on genes that are beneficial because it's getting hotter. And so, you know, there are other people that are doing that kind of work, um, but, you know. We know about evolution. We kind of understand about how, how evolution works. So there's there are definitely things adapting to climate change. Whether they can adapt fast enough uh, to stick around is another question. Yeah, have, have you uh, found the um, you know some some of the coral reefs that you've been working on to uh, be impacted pretty pretty badly by climate change? I mean, are, are there certain areas of the world that um, you know are are just becoming less and less accessible to researchers because of that, or is it actually providing um, an opportunity to learn more about climate change. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be both. I mean, I was out in uh, Morea in French Polynesia a couple years back in, in 2019, and I was out there uh, collaborating with a research group that works on anemone fish specifically because anemone in the lagoon, some of them bleached during, you know, the last heat wave, some of them didn't. So they did some moving around and, and we did some and we did some work on them. Um, try and figure out the genomic basis of it. And we've not really generated those data yet. Um, but you know, that whole reef after I was there bleached like two weeks later Ooh. and, um, yeah. So Morea and French Polynesia have been hit by a, a lot of, a lot of really bad bleaching. Um, the reefs there seem to be a little more species poor. They're not as diverse. And so, you know, if you have a sort of species poor reef and, you know, everything responds in a similar way. You can wipe it out really quickly. Um, yeah, so it's an opportunity as a scientist to understand it, but it's a little depressing. Yeah, no, that is a little <laughs> depressing. So, all right, um, 
Invertebrates, that's that's really the thing that you've um, been studying the most in terms of the uh, the cryptic species. Yeah. What about fish? You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I know you're not uh, an expert in terms of cryptic species of fish, but um, can you talk to that a little bit? Are, are there um, cryptic species of fish out there that are uh, in the aquarium trade that we might not know about in our tanks? Yeah, yeah, I, almost certainly. And I would not be surprised if some of them are clownfish. And, you know... Some areas of the world are really hard to get to. Um, Indonesia, for example, you know, there's lots of stuff that, you know, has historically come out of Bali. I don't really know if Bali has opened back up. I know there was a big shutdown there recently. But if as a scientist, if you want to go study anything from Indonesia, um, it is almost impossible to get samples out. Um and even if you have a local collaborator, it's really hard to get samples out. And so a lot of times when we do some biogeography where we're sampling across a huge area, you know, you look at these papers and Indonesia is just empty from a sample perspective because it's almost always off limits to, mm. you know, to research. And, um, and, you know, there's a long history of colonialism and all sorts of stuff that has gone on. Um, that sort of shape the policies of these countries, but it doesn't yep. make it any easier. But you know, I mean, there's like um, all sorts of really interesting morphs that are found and pop up all the time, from especially from the fish side. Um, you know, the Clark Clark eye, the Clark's clown anemone fish or clownfish. Um, lots of debate about how many species there are. Um, it's probably at least two. Um, you know, even within you know. Ocellaris, you have like the black Darwin clown. Yep. Um, that looks like it's genetically distinct. Um, I think there have been some interesting things with like the maroon lightning clown that's been shown some interesting genetic patterns as well. And, and even the true percula clownfish. There's all sorts of interesting, interesting little, you know, morphs of, of clownfish. And um, yeah, no one really has a great answer for it yet. And some of these places are just hard to get samples. What, I wonder what the um, the scientific community's um, reaction is to all the breeding that's going on in the aquarium trade in terms of clownfish. I mean, there are just so many morphs of clownfish out there, and I just wonder what the, what that's doing to the clownfish, you know, the different species of clownfish out there in terms of all that. I mean, there's got to be a lot of um, things going on in terms of that kind of breeding. Yeah, yeah, you would think there would be some really interesting like genome rearrangements and, you know, combination of genes that you wouldn't get in uh, in the wild necessarily. But, you know, I think most of the people are probably pretty, um, you know, happy that that's going on. So then you keep the wild fish in the wild and, you know, then you can breed them to your heart's content in a tank. And I think that um, that, you know, I think that's a positive, you know, by and large. All right. So you've um, been talked a lot about uh, sea anemones and that's that's an area of your expertise can you um can you just discuss a little bit in terms of the kind of work that you've done on that um side yeah absolutely so so, you know tropical sea anemones are 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 sort of interesting you know we think about the clownfish as this really well-known symbiosis you know clownfish are the poster child for the aquarium trade it's probably one of the most well-known animals on the planet really, um, with Finding Nemo and Dory and all the movies. Yep. And so, you know, I think people are, are pretty surprised in a lot of ways when, when you tell them, you know, we just really don't know anything about the sea anemones. And, and not only that, but, you know, tropical sea anemones really haven't had a whole lot of attention since 
really the advent of modern DNA sequencing. <laughs> so, you know, that is a long time ago. So we are playing serious catch up. And, you know, there are a number of reasons for that, why they've sort of been overlooked in a, in a lot of ways. Some of it just has to do with they're a challenging animal to work with. So early on, a lot of the DNA sequencing approaches were using mitochondrial DNA as these sort of DNA barcodes, which are, have been useful for figuring out, hey, this might be a new species or this is the same, this is different, those kind of questions. Yep. But for, for whatever reason, you know, sea anemones and, and, and corals fall into this category you know, their mitochondria DNA, mitochondrial DNA evolved so slowly that, you know, we can't use those same kind of markers that you can use for a shrimp um, or a mammal um, for the anemones. And so that's put us behind the eight ball. And, you know, for basically 30, 40 years, we just have been very limited in our ability to figure out how many species there are. And, you know, when we're talking about the clownfish symbiosis broadly, you know, that's 50% of the interaction. We just don't have any clue about, relatively speaking. So we think we might have this idea about how the whole symbiosis has evolved and, you know, these behaviors and host specialization and what is really going on in the system. You know, the anemone is just as important <laughs> as the fish yeah. to make the whole system work. And we just don't, we don't know anything about it. So, uh, so yeah, for the last three years or so, I've really been working on that. Uh, side of things. And so we've, you know, really started from the bottom. We've published a paper showing that the symbiosis has evolved um, three times independently with sea anemones. So clownfish, right? They're this group of 28 or so described species that all evolved from a common ancestor. Whereas the anemones actually are, you know, three major independent lineages um, within the broader sea anemone order. And so, you know, either the fish have evolved to live with lots of different anemones and, and vice versa. So there are these independent evolutionary events that have happened in the sea anemones. Um, and so now we're really trying, moving on from there, really trying to figure out how many species belong to each of these three groups. And so one of those big groups is the bubble tip anemones. Um, that's described as a single species. Um, a lot of the, a lot of the new data we're generating is looking like it's probably going to be four, maybe five different, different species of bubble tip anemones alone. And so hmm. if I had to guess by the time it's all said and done, there's 10 described species of anemones that host clownfish right now. And it's probably going to be 20 or more. Well, um, would be my guess. Yeah. So what are the implications for us as hobbyists? You know, with, with that sort of information in hand from the scientific community, would, would that allow us to make better de decisions in terms of pairing clownfish with anemones? I think that's a good question. I, it's hard to say because you have like Ocellaris will live with like a Caribbean anemone from time to time. And so you put a fish in a tank and they behave very differently than they do in the wild. Right. So from a, from a hobbyist perspective, it's a, it's unclear how that would really change these interactions. You know, Amphiprion ocellaris, the Clark, you know, or the, you know, ocellaris clown or the percula clown, you know, those are species that never associate with bubble tip anemones in the wild. Um, and they do all the time in a tank. Um, so how that affects the interaction might not affect it all that much from a hobbyist perspective. But if I know the hobbyist, I know that everybody likes the coolest, rarest, most unique thing. Yeah. And so, 
you know, that's sort of a thing. And if there's a really rare local endemic someplace, bubble tip anemone, you know, you know, the Colorado, I mean, I was at the last magnet that we had in person, you know, it was the Colorado sunburst that's crazy price and, you know, all these things, that's crazy prices. And those are just different colors. Imagine if that's like not only a cool color, but that's like a new rare species. And, um, you know, that'll send that thing through the roof. Yeah. And so, yeah. So it affects the psyche. It doesn't necessarily right. affect the interaction with the fish. It's uh, it's interesting because, you know, I've, I've had many, many clownfish and I've never kept anemones. Well, I take that back. I once had a, a bubble tip anemone and it lasted one uh, one day sure. because it got sucked into the powerhead. <laughs> so I lost that bubble tip anemone. And, and I've always been hesitant to, uh, to mm-hmm. have anemones because I like SPS and they tend to yeah. wander around the tank. But, you know, there's a lot of folks out yep. there that have, uh, you know, fine luck keeping uh, anemones with the... Uh, with the yeah. SPS dominant tank, but um, I've found them to host like a leather coral. I've found them to host in a clam, yep. you know, um, torch coral. I mean, pretty much uh, right now I've got two that are living in a Ghanaiapora, you know, and, and, nice. but it's, it was weird because they both were not, uh, they were not um, made a pair of uh, clowns. I got them separately. And for like the first couple of years, they slept in different corners of the tank and then all of a sudden, huh. one day, I noticed that there were like uh, there was a clutch of eggs. I was like, "How'd that happen?" You know? Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. You know, it's one of the the honestly the the single biggest mystery with the excuse me the clownfish stuff is what is the really what is the mechanism that allows these fish to live in the anemone? You know, we still don't actually know that. There are some pretty good hypotheses about maybe it's like chemical camouflage, right? There's some sort of like convergence between the mucus on the fish and the mucus in the anemone and the anemone just sort of is recognizing the fish itself. Um, but you know, from a fish standpoint, like there could be some sort of like, you know, tactile stimulation that they are gaining from the anemone that's sort of that they like. So if they find something that can provide like a similar tactile sensation, then maybe you can get like what you're saying, like a you know a mated pair in a <laughs> goniopora. <laughs> so, folks, that, don't be afraid to chime in here. We uh, we have a uh, we have a sea anemone expert with us and, and an invertebrate uh, <laughs> expert. So feel free to uh, fire away with uh, some questions in in the chat. I've I've definitely got uh, some more questions there uh, for you, Ben, because I find this stuff yeah. fascinating in terms of trying to understand the behaviors of these uh, animals that we keep in our tanks. And I guess. There are different um, behaviors that you will witness in captivity versus in the wild. And is that something that you have to factor into the uh, research that you do? Because I'm assuming that you don't always get the chance to study these things in the wild. Yeah. You know, I think that's a huge one. Um, If you ever want to do sort of a a manipulative lab experiment where you can actually control for a lot of different variables that you, you know, you want an answer like, hey, what does the what does the microbiome, so the microbial community do um, with a fish and without a fish? Well, if you put a clownfish in a tank, you know, sometimes they just don't even go in the anemone at all. So it's hard to really um, control for those factors and you have to really take that into account. Um, and it can make doing laboratory work really problematic. <laughs> if you want to under, if you want to understand like host choice, for instance, that's a really important perspective from the clownfish evolution. It's like, what fish or what anemone does it prefer? Well, if you take it out of the wild and put it in a tank and it lives with a goniopora just as easily as it does with yeah. the bubble tip or anything else, then you're you're 
conclusion is, well, host choice isn't important. But if you go on a reef, uh, there are very clear non-random patterns that you see in the wild that are important. And, and so it is. It's hard to really tease these factors apart. And um, part of the reason why right now I, I'm really good at going to the field and collecting and killing things. <laughs> and not, I'm not very good at keeping them alive yet right now. Oh. It's a lot of work or maybe not as much payoff. Yeah. So we have a question. I'm not sure you're going to be able to answer this question or not, but uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll run it up the flagpole. Um, sure. Ghouls is asking, I'd like, I'd like to add another clownfish to my one lonely clown I have now and my special... Any special tips on how to add it? Should the patterns be similar size, et cetera? That's a good question. There's probably someone more experienced than I am, but um, I've always been under the impression that if you add similar size clownfish, then things can get a little dicey. Yeah. So I might add a smaller one. Does that sound about more in line with your experience? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and, um, I just, uh, about a year ago, I started a new um, peninsula tank. It's a 225-gallon peninsula tank, and it's six nice. foot long by three foot wide, 20 inches tall. And I love clownfish, and I've always had just one pair of clownfish in my uh, reef tanks. And the biggest tank I ever had was a 225-gallon tank in Connecticut that was broken down many years ago. So, um, but I was determined to get two different pairs of clownfish in, into that new tank. And... Uh, Knock on wood, so far so good. You know, I I, um, I had two different pairs that I had in two different frag tanks that just uh, were hanging out solo, you know, in, in terms of being in those two different tanks, those two different pairs of clownfish, and I don't know, for six months to uh, eight months or whatnot. And then at the same time, I put both pairs of the clownfish in the, uh, in the new tank, and uh, it's kind of a weird thing that's going on right now, but, you know, at night they kind of like all sleep together in the same bunch. In oh, one quarter of the tank, but then during the day when the lights are on, they're at opposite ends of the uh, the tank. So, oh, very um, cool. Yeah, but uh, you know, I, I guess that's a whole other consideration in terms of the uh, the size yeah. of the territory with clownfish. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Are these all oscillaris? Uh, so um, I, one pair is definitely oscillaris, and the other are the uh, the mocha storm. I'm not sure if those are oscillaris or not. Do you know that? Uh, I think they. I, th I think they are. Yeah, they're dark, like a darker pair. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, okay, we've got a whole bunch of sea uh, anemone and clownfish questions popping in here, All right, uh, here Ben. We go. So hopefully, uh, I didn't put you on the spot too much here. I'll do, I'll do my best. <laughs> Braveheart Reef for five two five. Why do bubble tips lose the bubbles in aquariums? Another great question. Um, you know, that is one of those things I've always wanted to know the answer to that. And from what I have read and talked to people about, uh, people think that it's some combination of the water flow in your tank and the light in your tank. And so I don't really have a good a specific answer about what factor controls what, but you know, anemones are very delicate. So if you have, um, if you have a, a really high flow tank, I would imagine, you know, scrunching up your tentacles, creating more bulbous, like less drag. Um, if you have lower flow, you can envision a scenario where the tentacles elongate some and might increase a sort of catch radius from a prey capture perspective. And I've also heard the light's important. So like maybe the bubbles do something by refracting light in a, 
in a way that's you know increases the efficiency of the symbiodinium, the the symbiotic algae that live with them. Um, it's a good question. I'd love to know the answer to that too. I also think the fish is important. I think you know one of the papers that we did. I was a master student in the Red Sea. You know we found these bubble tip anemones. Um, the pattern was that they only had long sort of finger-like tentacles when they had two adult breeding pairs in them. So um, the ones that were, you know, stubbier, more bulbous anemones had, you know, either a juvenile in it or just a single adult or a sub-adult. And so I think that's a factor too. I think the fish presence could potentially be a factor. Um what about mixing different types of clownfish? Deep Reef has got a question about that. Um, can a Percula and Ocellaris uh, pair up? I mean, in your research, have you got into that as a variable in terms of the symbiosis between symbiosis between a, uh, a sea anemone and, and a clownfish pair? Or is it pretty much, you know, you're, you're looking at one species of clownfish and one species of anemone to, to study? Or have you ever tried to um, kind of flip it up a little bit in terms of the, uh, the clownfish? Yeah, you know... I think you are well. I I know of some data that will be coming eventually from Switzerland. So I was in Switzerland previously in Nicholas Salmon's lab group. They are looking. They're using the full genomes to look at you know how hybridization has shaped species um, speciation events in clownfish, and and it's important at some level um, for some for some species. And so there's definitely been some you know hybridization in the past. Um. But yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, hybridization events, if they like actually occur and at least basically, you know, by definition going to probably be pretty rare. So I think they're much more likely to probably fight each other than <laughs> mate with each other <laughs> or coexist. Um, and there are some really rare patterns that you can see in the coral triangle where you do get multiple species living on the same anemone. And that's in a really uh, sort of densely packed region with a lot of different species of clownfish where there are more species of clownfish than species of anemones. Um, and so you do see some interesting occasionally where you'll get, where, you'll, where you will get that, but, um, let us know how it goes. So, so Ben, <laughs> you mentioned, uh, Switzerland and before we went on the live stream, you were telling me about what was going on in uh, Switzerland. Can you, uh, can you share that on the, uh, the stream yeah. in terms of what the uh, work you were doing in Switzerland? And to, to me it's like, wow, you're going to Switzerland and you're studying clownfish. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, before the year, before, so my family and I were in Switzerland last year, um, moved there in August of 2020 and then moved back in at the end of June of this year. And, you know, I had previously written a, a two year postdoc proposal to the European union for a Marie Curie fellowship. And, uh, Switzerland's obviously not in the EU, but I was able, they're part of these sort of broader EU economic zones. So I was able to take that fellowship and, and take it to Switzerland. And there's a, a professor there, Nicholas Salomon, who is in a, he's the, chair of the Department of Computational Biology at the University of Lausanne. So right on Lake Geneva is beautiful. And he um, is an evolutionary biologist who has been really leading the charge in a lot of ways with doing the full genome sequencing and evolution of the clownfish. And so their lab has done a lot of really nice stuff and they've sequenced um, a number of different clownfish genomes. And as an as a sea anemone biologist, I really um, hadn't had an opportunity to to do the full genome work yet. And so I wrote a proposal to do the full genomes for the clownfish anemones. 
And so that was ultimately uh, funded. And so we got to go live in Switzerland. So that is really, um, that's work that I'm now doing at, at Alabama. So we're going to be sequencing the full genomes of the anemones and then using those genomes to ask some questions about mutualism and how the mutualism with clownfish has affected the genomic architecture and evolution of the anemone genomes. Um, so getting at a number of different types of questions that are, again, this is a very basic research kind of question rather than sort of an applied stuff, but you know, things like the fish are providing really important services to the anemone too, right? So they're, they're fighting off predators. They're constantly, uh, the anemone, uh, as they move through the anemone, they're facilitating gas transfer. So they're sort of oxygenating their host. Those are all really important things for the sea anemone um, that could ultimately allow them to evolve different characteristics. Maybe they evolved a really large body size because they had this symbiosis with the fish that allowed them to do that. Um, you know, things like that. <laughs> so uh, NSB Reese has got a question, and, and, and um, it's an interesting question, but uh, it, it the direct question is, how does alk calcium play a part with uh, with anemones? Is, does that impact their behavior at all, their health at all, in terms of tank parameters? I don't know. If I had to guess, I would imagine they are very, it's a very limited effect. Um, you know, anemones are going to be a lot more flexible in terms of their environmental parameters than, you know, an SPS or an LPS coral will. Um, and you see that, too, in the wild. You know, they have they live farther north or farther south than, you know, like a reef. So as a reef peters out, you'll get anemones. What, uh, I don't know if you're, you'd be able to answer this question, but what kind of um, tips would you provide, um, you know, to, to someone that wants to keep an anemone in their reef tank in terms of the optimal conditions for a sea anemone? You know, obviously I think to have clownfish hosting would, would seems to, uh, to help, but any, any, um, things to, uh, you know, general tips for, for sea anemones? <laughs> That's, that's a good question. You know, let the thing settle and find a nice home. I think the water velocity in a tank is probably going to be pretty for the anemone. Yeah. I know a lot of people hate having them because they move all over the place. Um, you know, if you're trying to grow a bunch of SPS corals and you're blasting, you know, like an ecotech pump and it's really churning the water around, I doubt an anemone is going to be super thrilled. Um, to hang out in a tank like that. I mean, but for the most part, you know, they live right on the reef with everything else. So I think you're going to end up with a lot of the same kind of environmental parameters that they um, require. They can, you know, if you have a nutrient bomb of a tank, they're probably going to be happier than a coral will be. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, you know, I think the, I think the, the water motion is probably a, a really important one. They'll move around until they find that nice hidden spot. Um, and and would a mature tank be better than versus a young tank to uh, try to keep an anemone? I I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know. You know, maybe it'd be better to do a young tank, and then you don't you know it doesn't kill all your corals. Let it settle and get in there first, and then you can add corals around it after it's kind of found a nice spot. That would be my that would be my guess. Um, all right, a couple more questions here, uh, Ben. Uh, how are carpet anemones collected? I don't know if you have any uh, info on that. Do they propagate easily? I'm up in Canada, and, and the prices are extremely high, five to 600 bucks. Just wondering if they are um, yep. hard to collect. Yeah, they're hard to collect. Um, you know, they're huge. So 
the ones that we really are only seeing in the trade are, you know, Stichodactyla hadonii, um, which is the smallest typically of the carpet anemones. Um, you know, Stichodactyla mertensi is, you can get, it's a meter across on the reef. It's just like a drapes over the reef. So you're not going to collect big animals. So, you know, from a collecting standpoint, you need to find, you know, fairly young, recently settled individuals to actually collect reasonably in the trade. And I just, there's a sexual species only, so they are not propagating asexually on the reef. So they're just going to be at lower abundance. And, and I think that's probably why you're seeing the price where it's at. So another question from Matt A. Will uh, decades of propagation in the aquarium trade slash home aquariums uh, alter the genome of corals, making them a different species from the original wild colony? I, I you know, I guess um, in terms of um, corals, that, that might not be the, your your area of expertise. But um, any thoughts on on that question? Yeah, I mean the propagation, the 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 mutations that you're going to get um, by propagating things asexually are going to be we call those somatic mutations. So those are not mutations that are being passed down generationally through sexual reproduction. And so it's not, those are not rearranging the genome. Um, and so somatic mutations are important, um, especially in terms of like, you know, an individual lifespan. Um, so maybe it, you know, induces senescence, which is just this naturally occurring process of things dying. Um, so maybe you get a bunch of bad mutations accruing in a colony or, or, a, or a genetic line, and then it just dies off. Um, but, you know, if you think about dogs, for instance, and how those have been sort of artificially bred by humans, essentially into a new species, you could presumably do that um, if you can do it through sexual reproduction. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lots of examples of domestication. There you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, another interesting question from Drama D. Curious if tank temp plays a role, um, you know, cold water anemones, temp tank comparisons would be a cool study. How, how low can a bubble tip go type of thing? I, I guess, yeah. What's the impact of temperature on the, uh, the anemones? Yeah. It's a good question. So I have some collaborators in Japan and they've done some phenomenal sampling for me um through a project that we have ongoing and they've sent me some really cool pictures of um some of the sites they've collected from and one of them is up in um the northern part of the japanese islands up near tokyo which is a very temperate um almost cold water uh area and you, there is just you just carpet of bubble tip anemones as far as you can see there are no fish there are no clowns anywhere in those pictures and there's like fronds of kelp that are like growing up mm. in between some of the anemones. And it's really interesting. It's almost like, you know, if you went diving off, I don't think it's quite as cold as like diving off the coast of California. Um, but yeah, I think they can tolerate, they can tolerate much lower temperatures. I cannot imagine them tolerating much lower than like 65 degrees. That would be my guess. <laughs> That'd be pretty cold. Yeah, that is pretty cool. That would be a cold water reef tank for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, here's another interesting question from Ghouls. Do anemones carry any pests? I don't think I've ever seen a dip for them. Anything to worry about when adding straight to a tank? Thanks for all the great info. Yeah. Well, yeah, happy to be here. I, I, great question. Don't know. <laughs> don't know. Yeah, I've never, never I, seen anybody dip in an enemy. Yeah. Probably I don't want to do that. Probably not. I, I would stay away from that. If you're really worried, set up a little quarantine tank and <laughs> see what happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the um, the, uh, the the shrimp might not um, be 
you know, um, helping in terms of any parasites that might be on the uh, the sea anemones or whatnot. Those are um, more about um, the symbiotic relationship between the uh, the cleaner shrimp and a fish versus an anemone in terms of the pests. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Um, all right, so Ben, you're a you're a biologist, and last week I had another biologist on the show, Dr. Eli Meyer, who started up a new company. Oh, nice. I don't know yeah. if you've heard of uh, Aquabiomics, but they're a company that does uh, bacteria testing. So uh, hobbyists cool. can send in, you know, uh, water samples, and they can test for the actual DNA in the tank to see what uh, you have in there in terms of pests or other, uh, you know, critters, I guess. And then yeah, very they, cool. They could also study the, um, you know, the you mentioned microbiome, so they can kind of yep. tell what kind of bacteria, you know, you have in your tank, whether it's good and bad uh, bacteria. Um, do you think we're going to see more science-based services like this become available to reef keepers in the future? Because I don't know of anybody else that's doing that sort of um, service, and and um, you know, you mentioned before that the lines of communication between the trade and and the scientific community are not terribly tight, but um, yeah, just kind of interested in your thoughts in terms of will we get more science available to us in terms of the tank? I mean, ICP testing obviously is something that uh, has been great in terms yep. of being analyzed the water, but anything else that you think might be coming down the pike? I think those are great services. I hope I hope they become more popular. Um, I've always been interested, you know, understanding like what is the reef tank microbiome. You know, I was able to do sort of a microbiome paper on the anemones that host clownfish in the Maldives that kind of got me, dipped my toe into some of those methods. Yep. And yeah, it's critically important. And so I think, you know, people are starting to talk about reef restoration in terms of like restoring them, like adding microbial, like healthy microbial communities to like wild reefs to help it maintain its health and all sorts of stuff. So I would imagine that there is a huge um, potential demand for that kind of thing in the in the in the hobby. If we, you know, but we need the basic research first. We need to understand what does you know your typical good bacterial community look like in a, in a reef tank. Um, you know, I think we think of these tanks a lot of times as like mini oceans, and but if they're just not, you know, they're yeah. it's very different. You yeah. know, you know, there's even the debate between you know sand having a sand bed and not having a sand bed. That, you know, you'll hear people like, well, there's sand in the ocean. It's like, well, there is the volume of sand to water in the ocean is not even yeah. terrible, but in a tank, <laughs> yeah. it's a huge deal. Yeah. So, you know, those are important considerations to take. So I think that stuff is really cool. So, uh, Drew Young has another anemone question, uh, for you there, Ben, what are the best propagation tips for anemones? Many hobbyists force a 50% water change to, um, force a split after months of feeding any any tips on propagation you know that's a that's a good question um you know some people just cut them in half <laughs> so mm. that's um you know uh, colin ford you know the coral morphologic yeah. guy yeah. he does a lot of cool stuff he'll just cut phymanthus in half and um that's not an asexually reproducing species and he has able is able to do it sometimes you know with the bubble tip anemones, you can probably cut those things in half, um, and because they do split. Um, but I know people who have, have anemones just that are splitting left and right, and other people, you know, who their anemones won't split at all. So I actually don't really know the answer to like what triggers it specifically. Well, Drama D said that um, somebody had a power outage and and uh, interrupted the light schedule, and all of a sudden the anemones split, and then apparently were pissed off. So I, I guess uh, I guess sometimes you can go figure. 
You know, there's a long history of there's this uh, theory behind reproduction that was back in the 60s and 70s. It's called the strawberry coral model. And it's the question essentially is when do you asexually reproduce versus sexually reproduce? And one of the theories behind the asexual propagation is, you know, when things are going really well, you split because why would you sexually reproduce and lose half your genome to the next generation when you're going really well right here? And the, the flip side is when I'm really stressed out, you should split. And so, you know, I don't think there's any been, ever been any real resolution there. So it might, <laughs> might be stress. So Deep Reef is wondering, uh, what are some anemone diseases to be aware of? Diseases? Yeah. That's a great question. Honestly, I don't really know. I don't know if there's really any research. I, again, there's like a handful of us in the whole world that are really studying sea anemones. And, and but you, you, know, you got a lot, a lot of, of times, you got a lot of people that are giving you fodder for studies right here. You know, that <laughs> I know. Well, the disease thing's really cool. And, you know, every now and then you'll see some anemone that looks a little gnarly. Um, the tentacles look splotchy and bad. And it's a good question. No one's really working on it. And the other problem is, you know, these anemones, they don't have skeletons. You know, when they die, they just die and then they dissolve and they disappear. And so there's not a lot of opportunity to, to really catch it while it's happening. Um, and I think that's part of it, too. You can see black band disease eat away, you know, a coral colony for weeks, maybe. But, um, you know, an anemone is going to die and dissolve and disappear in like a day. <laughs> So what so. Um, what drives the you know the decisions to to come up with a study you know a, a scientific study what are what are behind those decisions because you know obviously the aquarium trade is the aquarium trade and uh, mm -hmm. I would assume that there's not going to be a lot of influence by the aquarium trade on the scientific community to study something unless there is going to be some sort of uh, you know advantage for both both sides but um, what what kind of like drives the um, you know the, uh, the 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 different types of studies that, that you are involved with in terms of that kind of work? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. Um, you know, we try and link a lot of the research we do to like some really broad conceptual ideas, you know, as, as much as it pains me to say this, because, you know, as like a, as a, I consider myself like an organismal biologist. Like I love sea anemones and I love the animals themselves. And I got into this because I loved, these animals and I just wanted to know more about them. And um, the reality is, is a lot of people in the sciences, like another evolutionary biologist doesn't care about sea anemones. Like I don't care about their birds or their snakes <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, there's just not this like, in, you know, inherent pull to like need to know, Oh man, I can't wait to find out what's going on with the bluebirds or whatever. Um, and so in order to sort of like, garner broader interest is that you have to, you have to stay broad typically. And so, you know, what are the questions if you're interested in like bird speciation? Well, maybe there's some really cool parallels in terms of the way birds speciate and the way anemones speciate or the way corals speciate or the way snakes speciate. So we try and stay kind of broad conceptually with some of these questions. Um, you know, and it might be like, the role of allopatric versus sympatric speciation or the role of gene flow in the speciation process. You know, there's lots of complicated ways things can speciate. Um, and so those are ways that we can kind of connect the dot, reach broader scientific audience. And that is really important too, from us, from a funding perspective, because, you know, 
the National Science Foundation, some of these agencies that fund basic research, they want it to be as broad and as applicable as, as possible. So we really try and work to make sure that our proposals are broad, they're interesting to the broader community, and that we're going to learn something that the broader community can then incorporate and and build off of. Um, so, you know, we think about science as sort of this process of building on each other. And, and, and so it's sort of that's part of that's a big motivating factor. Um, so, yeah, unless you work on humans and then you can just say humans are interesting because we're all human. You know, what I mean? <laughs> they don't have to do that as much. Right. Yeah. Now, listen, man, but, I think it's it's really cool stuff that you're one of the few people in the world that are studying this sort of thing. And, uh, you know, that just kind of goes to show in terms of like how many different just just in terms of what the uh, the questions on the minds of the viewers here tonight in terms of, um, yeah. you know, and, and, and some of the stuff that you guys haven't looked at. It's just um, amazing to me that um, there is um, so much to be done on that end and um, so few people out there that, uh, you know, have the ability and the funding and the capability yeah. to do that uh, kind of research. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and a couple ones, obviously, that the trade, you know, I'd love to hear from people in the trade that have, you know, anemone lifespan. Would love to know more about that. Would love to hear even anecdotal evidence, how long your anemones, you've been able to keep them alive. Like, that's a hugely important question that, you know, we don't, you know, have a good handle on. Um, you know, we know the fish can stay alive for 30 years. So presumably the anemones have got to be able to stay alive for a long time, too. But, you know, those are things that, you know, we don't understand, but they, the trade would be hugely helpful and, you know, pinging us emails from time to time or asking us questions. And, you know, I love to hear from, from people, cool observations like that. So if you've had a 20 year old tank and, you know, carpet anemone that's hanging around, that would be awesome. Ben, is there a <laughs> way for folks to find you out there on the web or? Yeah, totally. Um, you know, my, uh, my, don't give out your, don't give me, don't, don't is, give out your email address, will, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, my, well, my website is TitusLab.ua.edu, And I am also on Twitter. It's, uh, at Ben Titus four. I don't know where the four came from. It was just the auto generated Twitter thing. However, many years ago it was when I got the, uh, <laughs> Twitter account. So yeah, feel free to reach out. I'm sure my email address is out there publicly somewhere. <laughs> hopefully you're not getting <laughs> probably has hopefully you're not getting it probably has to be because I'm a state employee. Uh, all right. Well hope you're not getting spammed too badly. But uh yeah, Ben man, this was this was awesome. A very educational uh chat. Yeah, any uh, any last yeah. things you wanted to uh add before we uh sign off here? Um, I don't know. Hopefully I'll see you all in person at a Magna conference next year. Yeah. So I'll I'll be there if if uh <laughs> if there That's is my one. uh I think it's what Milwaukee. Yeah, that's my plan is to be in Milwaukee too. So hopefully I'll see you okay, there. Good. Ben. Yeah. Good. Absolutely. All right. Absolutely. Well, listen, Ben, thank you so much again for uh, being a part of this thank live you. stream. And I want to thank everybody uh, for tuning in and asking some great questions. And as Ben said, please uh, reach out to him on the uh, the web or Twitter if you uh, have any uh, intelligence that you could pass along or any questions. But um, I also want to thank the uh, sponsors, Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine, for uh, supporting the show and for everybody tuning in and watching. I also want to remind you folks that um, all episodes of Wrapping with Reef Bum are now available as podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. My uh, next live stream will be next Thursday, October 14th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and it's going to be with hobbyist Joe Muscat, also known as Tusi on reef to reef and he's got a pretty kick-ass tank so it should be a a great show we'll we'll chat reef with uh with joe so until then be safe out there and we will see you next time